While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we have not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked them, what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with them and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. So that even handkerchiefs, aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And one day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I have been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in no little business for the craftsmen. He called them together, along with the workmen in related trades, and said, Men, you know we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow, Paul, has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says, that man-made gods are no gods at all. There's danger. 
not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself was worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and rushed as one man into the theater. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews pushed Alexander to the front, and some of the crowd shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours. Great is Archimedes of the city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Men of Ephesus, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to be quiet and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of today's events. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. After he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. miss the riot. Acts 19. So Apollos is mentioned. Remember Apollos from the last time we were in chapter 18. He was ministering effectively. He was a good speaker. He had a great understanding of the word. He had a powerful gift of articulating the gospel. So he was refuting the Jews and uh, doing a great job his eschatology was good. He was a good speaker, but he didn't have the whole gospel. Do you remember that? He was uh, under the impression that there was no baptism of the Holy Spirit. He was only baptized in John's baptism. And uh, he was pulled aside and kind of, you know, elevated to get the full gospel. But 
Uh, he only had the partial gospel, but he was doing the best he could with what he had. Isn't that a good thing for us to remember? Do the best you can with what you got. And God straightens out all the rest. You say, well, I, I believe this, and this group believes that. And, you know, as long as we have Christ in common, isn't that the main thing? Amen. So Paul is passing through the region on his way to Ephesus. Paulus is mentioned. Uh, in verse 2, Paul asks the believers at Ephesus, he goes, uh, what? Did you receive the Holy Spirit? So now this becomes a pertinent question here because after their encounter with Apollos, they're wondering what gospel is getting preached out there and is it preached in its fullness and is it accurate? And, and what did these people get? So he says to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believe? Listen to the answer. And they said to him, no, we have not even heard where there is a Holy Spirit. So, I mean, think about that. They're, these are the believers. These are the early church people and they're not aware of the Holy Spirit. Wow, it's quiet tonight. And it's amazing how, you know, God uh, counts us saved. He counts us one of his own. He counts us part of the church. And sometimes our theology is not that sound. How do you feel about that? It's a little uncomfortable, isn't it? Uh, Apollos didn't have the Holy Spirit, was baptized in John's baptism, yet he had a powerful ministry. Their response is, we don't even know about the Holy Spirit. What are you talking about? This serves as a proof that theology isn't necessary for salvation. We don't need to have this broad understanding of theology. We don't need to pass a Bible literacy test. When you get to the, you know, up to heaven, you're not going to get a Bible uh, literacy test, and if you get enough of them right. When we went to Bible school, the first thing they did is they gave us a Bible literacy test. And hopefully when you graduated, your score went up. But not always. So, uh, you know, it's not about theology. It's not about memorizing chapter and verse. All, all, I'm not demeaning that at all. I'm just pointing out here, you know, God has grace. God is not looking for scholars. He's looking for people who are, you know, saying, I need a Savior, and they want Jesus. So uh, understand, you know, some of this. You don't have to understand all the intricacies of the Trinity and the virgin birth and understand Bible prophecy and all that stuff to be saved. Yes, when you get saved, you should be a student of the word and you should have a working understanding of all these things. But let's not fall into the God of the age, which is intellectualism, and think that it's our knowledge and our, you know, our intellect and our theology that saves us. Because nothing could be further from the truth. Verse 3 and 4, like Apollos, the Ephesian believers had only been baptized into John's baptism. So they were about to get the full gospel. Uh, Paul explains what John's baptism was meant for in verse 4. And this is important. He shows them, you know, guys, uh, John's baptism was kind of a precursor to what you're supposed to have. He said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming. After this, that is, in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So there's a great response there. They hear the truth and their spirit bears witness with them and they receive the Holy Spirit and they're baptized into Christ. So uh, verse 6 and 7 shows the reward for their tender heart and for their teachable spirit. It says here, and when Paul laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men. So a small group, 12 people, yet they have the right heart. They're open to the fullness of what God has. And that's an important thing for us to take a look at here. That's the right heart to have. God, whatever you have, I want all of it. 
Do you know there's whole parts of the body that say, we, we, don't, we don't want this? Well, it's in the Bible. Well, we don't want it. But Paul wrote a whole chapters about it. Well, we don't want it. We don't believe it. It's not for today. Come on, Wednesday night. And you can't do that. You can't. I mean, that's the wrong heart to have to say, well, you know, I know it's scriptural. I know some people and I know about the gifts of the spirit. And I know about the prophetic and I know about tongues, but I don't want any of that. That's the wrong heart to have. Well, I'm just going to keep preaching until somebody says something. You know, because when we put a wall up with God, you know, what if God withdraws himself? Seek the Lord while he may be found. You know, we think we can treat God like a cafeteria buffet. I'll take some of this and I'll take some of that, but you can keep that. Hello, he's God. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. So I love their heart here. They hear and they believe and their gift. I mean, the gift is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues. They begin to prophesy. So a new dimension of their faith is poured out. And that's something that we should all understand. When God is moving, you and I need to say, God, whatever you're doing, I want to be part of it. And I want the fullness of what you have. Amen. He's not the great I was. He's the great I am. And he's doing stuff. So uh, this is a good this is a good indicator in the church here. There's only 12 of them, so realize small little enclaves here, but yet now they're filled with the Holy Spirit. 12 people filled with the Holy Spirit can turn a city upside down, and you're going to see that over and over again. Verses 8 and 10 show Paul invested his time there in the region, and uh, he goes to the Jews again, and, and we're going to see that. Remember, he was frustrated. He stormed out on a, a more than one synagogue, Paul has at this point. And the, the actors do a great job here depicting the frustration. But, uh, you know, in verse 8, it's here. He entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months. So he's investing time. Uh, reasoning and persuading. That means fighting and arguing. <laughs> right? Reasoning and persuading is a nice way to say there was resistance. Why do you have to use reason? Why do you have to go into argument after argument? Why do you have to use hypotheticals? Why do you have to pull out illustrations? Why do you have to use object lessons? Because people are resisting. And so Paul does what he does here and realize he's frustrated uh, dealing with people who don't you know, want to receive. But he stays scriptural in the sense that he brings the good news to the Jews first. The, 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 the precedent is set by God that it's for the Jew first and then the Greek. Amen. Salvation is of the Jews. Why? Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. When I was in Catholic school, the nun told me Jesus converted to Catholicism on the cross, that he was no longer Jewish. That's really what they told me. And I looked for it. I couldn't find it. And Jesus is and was and still is today a Jewish rabbi. He came for the Jews first. He, the, all the Jews are going to be saved. And, and in a, you know, the time of the Gentiles will be over and the church age will be over. And God will focus his attention on the Jews once again. So realize, you know, he does what's biblical, not because he wants to, not because it's not frustrating, not because it's the easiest way to go. He does it just to do the right thing. And I love that about Paul. He brings them the gospel first. He goes there for three solid months and he... He tries his very best. And, you know, remember, he, he's there and he's been delivered from fear because he's been beat up and he's been stoned and he's been kicked out of almost every city he's in. So he's bold there with them. Uh, and see that. Notice when God delivers us from fear, when God delivers us from the fear of man, what follows is boldness. 
if you look at your life and you say, well, I, I'm, I'm kind of timid, I, I, don't, I shrink back, or I'm afraid of what people think, maybe we need to bring our hearts before the Lord and, and have them check us for fear, amen? You know, when you go to the doctor, he sticks all kinds of stuff. He looks down your throat. He goes, ah, that stick that he sticks in there. He looks in your ears. He sees out the other side. What's he doing? He's checking us over. Sometimes we need to come before the Lord and say, check me over, Lord. What is it? And he'll reveal it. What is it? It's a spirit of fear. It's a spirit of this. And, and we can get deliverance. Paul's delivered. On the other side of that, there's boldness. And I want you to see that. That's the cool thing about deliverance. We get delivered from what is afflicting us. And so he's bold. He preaches for three months. After his three-month uh, investment, the response is chronicled in verse 9 here. And to be honest with you, you know, it's a tough response. It, but when some of them became hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. This took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So let's see what happens. He makes this big investment here of his time. He, he struggles to uh, somehow communicate the gospel to them. Uh, notice their response is that they're hardened. What, their hearts are hard. They're getting more agitated. They're getting more resistant. They're, they're getting more ob objections to the, to the gospel. So they're hardened. They're disobedient. And then they begin speaking evil. It says they begin speaking evil of the way. Realize Christianity wasn't called Christianity right at first. They, they referred to it as the way. And since Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that works for me. You know, so they resisted the way. What is he talking about when he says the way? He's talking about Christianity. It just wasn't called that yet. Uh, Paul withdraws himself, and instead he goes to the school of Tyrannus. Now, the school of Tyrannus was a private synagogue that God-fearing Greeks ran. Uh, and he left the Jewish synagogue and he went to the Greek synagogue. I want you to see that again. It's, it's more than symbolic. It's him, you know, turning away from the Jews because they reject the message and going to the Greeks. Even though it was a synagogue, the school of Tyrannus was a private synagogue. So it was run by the Jews. So there he was welcomed and there he taught for two years. And there another incredible investment of time. He taught there so systematically and so boldly that it says that the whole region of Asia, in verse 10, both Jew and Greek got the gospel message. So he, he's not having an easy time of things, but he's being effective. And realize in life, just because it's not easy for us or it's not, you know, it's uphill both ways sometimes, doesn't mean it's not God. Come on, church. Come on, Wednesday night. Sometimes God asks us to do hard things. Sometimes we're knee-deep in it. Oh, this can't be God. I'm going to quit. Don't quit. If, God, if it's God, doesn't mean it's going to be easy. Paul didn't quit. What's the fruit of him not quitting, doing something that was difficult? Everyone heard the gospel. And isn't that the, isn't that the point of the drill, anyone? It, it's not for us that, well, we've got to make converts, and we've got to build cathedrals, and we've got to fill it with people, and we've got to have everybody accept the message, and it needs to be a majority. It doesn't say that in the Word. It says, you know, narrow is the way and narrow is the gate and few that be there find it. So, I mean, think about this. We are, you know, we're in a tough fight sometimes with the world. The world doesn't want to come out of the dark. And so we got to preach the light. Paul's faithful. 
there. It's not a cakewalk. It's not easy ministry. But as perseverance gets the gospel out and everybody hears it, and that's all that any of us are ever entitled to, to hear the gospel and to choose whom we're going to serve. Verse 11 through 20 describes some pretty unusual miracles that accompany the gospel here in Ephesus. And, you know, when you see these miracles here, uh, it's pretty interesting how God chooses to move. Now, God pours out miracles as he sees fit. And in many ways, uh, you know, he uses miracles to reach those people in that area. It says here in verse 11, God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So there's a lot of resistance. So there's a lot of the supernatural. So that the handkerchiefs or aprons were being carried from his body to the sick and diseases left them and evil spirits went out. Let's just take a look at that right there. That's unusual stuff here. They're touching Paul with handkerchiefs, you know, and, and little pieces of cloth with aprons. And whatever touched Paul, if they put it on a sick person, they were healed. If they put it on a demon-possessed person, the demon was driven out. Now, while God can use anything he wants, any mechanism, any thing, a person, whatever, a handkerchief, an apron to heal and deliver. I don't think that this text is calling us to start a handkerchief and apron outreach. Okay? I'm going to make a point here about this. You know, uh, God, first of all, Paul didn't initiate this. Paul didn't say, touch me with your handkerchief and everyone shall be healed. No, it just happened. God did it sovereignly. So, you know, Christians get a little bit silly sometimes when they try and replicate things that are done in Scripture at a specific time in a specific place, and they try to do it, you know, in their own strength without God initiating it. Realize, if God says do something, do it. Come on, hey, can you turn this mic up a little bit? They're not responding to me enough. If God says do something, you do it. I don't care if he says take a hand. Jesus spit in the mud. He made mud, and he spread it in people's eyes. But I guarantee you this, if I say, well, I'm going to try that. I'm going to try and be Jesus Jr. I'm just going to get a big mole of mud up here. I'm going to call people up for an altar call. If I started mudding people in the eyes without God telling me, that's going to thin the crowd down a little bit. Okay? So understand this. You know, it's like Christians. Well, you know, they marched around the walls of Jericho. So we're going to go march around the walls of some place. And when they don't fall down, they act surprised. Well, did God tell you to do that? Come on. We've got to learn to flow with the Holy Spirit. Not to do what seems good or seems spiritual or that was done before. I'm not trying to quell anybody's faith. I'm just saying we need to listen to God, what he's saying to do in our specific situation. <laughs> you know, and you, there's some ministries that they send out handkerchiefs and stuff that are blessed by such and such an evangelist. Well, blow your nose in it and send it back. <laughs> you know, Christians get so goofy sometimes. And you wonder why the world thinks we're stupid. Because sometimes we do stupid things. Um, and look, if God says tomorrow, Pastor Rick, anoint the handkerchief, I'll anoint it. I'll anoint the shoe and throw it at people. I don't, whatever he says. But I just want to make sure he said it. Not that I, oh, I'm going to give this a try. <laughs> That's not the way the kingdom of God works. So uh, he's, uh, he, they're healing people. There's a, there's a strong... Uh, you know, miracle outreach here, and it's, you know, it's a good thing. It's a God thing. Paul didn't initiate it. It happened sovereignly by the Holy Spirit. Let's let the Holy Spirit continue to decide how he wants to minister to a generation through us. Amen. Let's believe everything the Word says, but let's do what the Holy Spirit leads us to do. Amen. Verse 13 
describes another expression of uh, spiritual presumption. You know, these guys get a little silly here in verse 13, and we see it says, but some Jewish exorcists, who knew they were Jewish exorcists? But apparently there were Jewish exorcists who went out from place to place attempting to name over those who had evil spirits in the name of the Lord, saying, listen to this, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. So these guys are being silly spiritually because they are spiritual copycats. You know, they're just copying what, what Paul did. They don't know Jesus. They don't have a relationship with him. They're not part of the church. They're just some exorcists who figure, hey, this is how you cast out devils. Seems to work good for Paul. So let's just do it in G Jesus' name. Verse 14, they were the seven sons of Sceva, Jewish priests. So they were doing this. In verse 15, and the evil spirit answered. So they're trying to cast the devil out, and they're saying, I adjure you uh, by Jesus whom Paul preached. And the devil answers him back and says, I, I know Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Now, this is not a good sign here. <laughs> but these guys, you know, these guys are using, uh, you know, a very presumptive secondhand faith. They're spiritual copycats. Listen, there's no secondhand salvation. There's no secondhand anointing. My kids can't go around, you know, doing, well, my dad's a preacher, so I can. No, you got to have it personally yourself. It's got to be a personal anointing. It's got to be personal salvation. It's got to be a personal spiritual gifts. There's no secondhand anything in the kingdom of God. Realize that. Well, you know, my parents were saved and they all went to church. You got to be saved. So we're either connected to God through Jesus and filled with the Holy Spirit rightly, or we're spiritual imposters. These guys were spiritual imposters. And you know what? Uh, they, they get themselves in a situation here where, you know, uh, they kind of are doing things that are dangerous. So we're going to see how it works out for them here in a minute. I, I know it said the seven sons of Sceva in verse 14, a Jewish priest were doing this and the evil spirit answered them. He says, you know, I know Jesus. I know Paul. I don't know you. And the man in whom the evil spirit leapt on them and subdued them and overpowered them. So they fled out of the house naked and wounded. So. Look, what you know, this is like worst case scenario here. All of us make mistakes spiritually. Some of you won't raise your hand. All of us have believed things that were unscriptural. I don't know if any of us have gotten a beat down from a devil, stripped naked and sent out into public. So, I mean, there's God's grace. And if you, if you did, please don't even share that story. But... The, they weren't rightly connected. They were spiritual counterfeits. And listen to me, the, the, men might give praise to spiritual counterfeits. You know, some spiritual counterfeit goes on TV, some talk show, and they start saying this and that about Jesus, about this. And the world will clap. Well, that's great. That's a new thing. We like it. We like it better than Christianity because Christianity is true, and that's a lie. We like your lie. And men might applaud a spiritual counterfeit. And they might submit to a spiritual counterfeit. But listen to me. The kingdom of darkness is not going to submit to spiritual counterfeits. The devil knows exactly who he's subjected to. He's subjected to the believer filled with the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus Christ. He's not subjected to anybody else, nor will the kingdom of darkness submit to anybody else. Get this. 
So you either got the power or you don't. You're either connected to the power or you're not. These guys were counterfeits. They weren't effect connected to the power, and the, the kingdom of darkness was not going to submit to that. So instead, the devil gave them a good old beatdown. And, and, and I mean, it's just... He strips them down. He sends them out running. They, they attempt to use false authority on him. And, you know, everybody in the area hears about this. And we're going to see the results of this in a minute. But I have a, you know, we have a, a picture of Jesus' response to this. Do we have that picture that you're going to put up? Jesus gave a, a, a pictorial response to this. Let's have it. Come on. This is your big moment. Is it coming? No, forget it. Next time I preach through the book of Acts. So they, uh, they get beat and they get running and uh, they're fakers and the enemy calls them out on it. Now understand this. As these guys are shamed and embarrassed and driven out into public, there's an interesting result here. Um, verse 17 to 20 show us the result of this is, is classic, and I want, you to, I want you to see this here. This became known to all. Yeah, I guess this would become known to all because uh, it's a big deal. I mean, this is kind of, you know, spiritually everybody's sobered up here. This became known to all, both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all in the name of the Lord Jesus who was being magnified. It says in verse 18, many of those who had believed kept confessing and disclosing their practices or confessing their sins. And many of those who practiced magic or witchcraft brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of all those burnt books and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. So I want you to see what this is here. The people's response to this event is they're, they're spiritually shaken, so they're a little fearful but this event is a classic example of how the enemy overplays his hand all the time and it backfires on him. See, if the devils knew what was going to happen for them beating these guys down and embarrassing them, they never would have did it. If the devil would have knew what was going to happen for crucifying Jesus, that he was going to raise again on the third day, he never would have forced that, you know, he, he did everything he could to draw Jesus to the cross. Hello? See, Satan's smart, but not that smart. And the, the kingdom of darkness makes a lot of miscalculations, and this is another one. He, they always overplay their hand because the people's response to this is that they don't fear the devil, they fear God. Hello? So the, what do they do? People get saved, and people start confessing their sin. Look, when people start confessing their sin, that's the power of God. Because people like to hide. No one, if I said, you know what, I'm done preaching tonight, I'm going to sit down. Why don't we just have 10 or 15 people come up tonight in close service by confessing their sin? Some of you just woke up. Time to go. No, no, no one wants to come up for that. When people start confessing their sin, it's a move of the Holy Spirit. How did the move of the Holy Spirit come? The fear of the Lord fell upon him. How did the fear of the Lord come upon him? The enemy stepped out and tried to assert himself and made a fool of himself and overplayed his hand. And instead of him being puffed up, Jesus was lifted up. 
not only did they confess their sin, they began to burn their, their books on witchcraft and sorcery and all that stuff. And I mean, if you see, I mean, the pile of stuff that they must have burned, um, when, you, when you see how much it was worth, 50,000 pieces of silver. Do you know what that would be in today's value? Astronomical amount of money. I didn't do the math on it. I could have got the price of silver and figured that out. But I'm telling you, that was a lot of financial. I mean, they burnt it up. Why? Because the fear of the Lord fell upon them, and they repented. Boy, do we need something like this in America, that the nation would repent of its wickedness and its godlessness and its fornication and its murder and its adultery and its abortion. Wow. God, move in our generation. So verse 20 here, we move on. The word of the Lord grew mightily, and it pushed back the darkness, so that's a good thing. Verse 21 through 22, Paul probes the will of God for his next move, and it's important for us to pick up things like this. Now, after these things were finished, Paul proposed in the spirit. What does that mean? He inquired of the Lord. Uh, spiritually, he wanted to know what his next move should be. All of us need to do things like that. When we don't know what to do or there's a, 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 you know, a fork in the road of our lives, we need to seek the Lord. Come on, Wednesday night. you got to preach back at me a little bit. Half a clap. You guys, I appreciate that. You know, when we don't know what to do, we need to hit our knees. And, and Paul, he's just like, you know, he's inquiring in the spirit. What should I do next? Where should I go next? And that's an important thing for us to catch here. Too many of us just do what we think we want to do or what we feel like doing, but we never inquire of the Lord. How many times have we done that only to make a mess? Let's learn. Paul learned his lesson quick. He, you know, in comparison to some of us, he's a baby Christian. He hasn't been saved that long. It's quiet now. Oh, well, I've only been saved for 50 years. I'm still sucking my thumb. No, you and I should be mature at this point. Learn to inquire of the Lord and hear the voice of God and be directed by the Holy Spirit. That's what he was doing here. He took the time to do that. Paul says, you know, uh, he desires to go to Rome. He mentions that. He sends his co-laborers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia. So the, the Spirit's moving and guiding and leading. Uh, God's moving his chess pieces around the board. Uh, people are being saved. The kingdom of darkness is being exposed. Good things are happening. And, and the, the missionary team is being led by the Holy Spirit. Verse 23 through 40, the, the rest of the chapter here shows the inevitable spiritual pushback. Remember, this is the pattern. Every place the gospel goes, God protects it. It gets out. People hear it. People get saved. But there's always pushback. The enemy pushes back this time. Uh, the gospel, uh, you know, gets the pushback in this region. And it's idolatry that uh, is, is the issue here. That, you know, the, uh, the idolatrous spirit that was in that region there finally had, it, had enough and pushed back against the gospel. In verse 23, it says, About that time it occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. Remember, that's Christianity. The church was called the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines to Artemis, was bringing no little business in to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends on this business. You see and hear that only in Ephesus be is the most of all of Asia. This Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying, 
that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Not only is there a danger that, that our trades fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis, uh, it's Dinah, Diana, they worship there. Artemis is what it's also called. Be regarded as worthless. And she whom of all of Asia and the world worship with even the dethroned and her, her magnificence. So uh, let's take a look at everything that went on in this situation here. The pushback comes, excuse me, I'm trying to get used to this new mic here that they stuck on me and now I can't cough or pound my chest. So you'll have to bear with me a little bit. Um, what's happening here is that, you know, the monetary issue is, is coming into play here. Uh, the pushback is that, you know, these guys who are making idols, all the silversmiths and uh, these people who are making money off of the idolatry in the region there, they are upset. In verse 25 and 26, the tradesmen gather together and they oppose the gospel because it's cutting into their checkbook. It's cutting into their bank account. Now, Paul preached that, you know, the idols made with hands were worthless. And so many people believed that message. There was enough repentance in the area that they stopped spending large money buying these personal household idols. And it was hurting the idol industry. So what happens? The Idols Workers Union, the local 79, they get together and they have a meeting. And, you know, they, they, they file a grievance over lost wages and they start a riot. And, I mean, it's the same spirit that's in the age today. I mean, you can do almost anything to anybody, but when you touch their money, I mean, you're going to start a riot. Do you know there's people who rape and murder and do all kinds of things and they're in and out of jail in a short period of time? Bertie Madoff, who stole money, is never coming out of jail. If you steal money from people, you're done. You, I mean, it's just incredible. Look at this. He touches their, their prosperity and they hate it. So the Idol Workers Union is mad and they come after him and they start a riot. The region's most popular idol, Diana or Artemis, was in danger of being dethroned by Paul's preaching. Isn't that what the gospel always does? It pushes back the darkness and it topples over idols. And the people who worship idols are not going to like it. Uh, verse 28 through 29 is where things get ugly. As the demonic spirits that are behind these idols stir up the people with confusion and then violence. So look at the violent mob. Where did that come from? Well, what do you think are behind these idols? What do you think it is? Just, you know, folklore or wives' tales or oral tradition? No, what's behind these idols of wood and stone and metal that people worship are demonic spirits. Hello? And when you step on them, guess what? The forces of darkness push back. So that's exactly, you say, all of a sudden, just out of nowhere, a riot with violence? Where did that come from? That's the nature of the kingdom of darkness. That's just the kingdom of darkness expressing itself. The people begin to chant, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. In verse 29, uh, they, they snatch up Gaius and Aristippus and uh, Paul's traveling companions, and they seize them and drag them out. So it's a mob. They've got people that they're dragging out. Uh, they're looking to blame somebody. Uh, Paul's friends in the region tell him, don't go down to the theater. Don't confront the mob, even though Paul wants to. But, Paul's not a coward, and notice, remember, he's been delivered from fear, so he still has that bold spirit in him. If he was fearful, if he was timid still, he would have said, I'm not going there. But he wanted to go, and they had to restrain him. 
I want you to know something. Not every fight is our fight. Let me say that again for those of you who are keyboard warriors on the Internet. Not every fight is our fight. Sometimes we just need to be quiet and not say anything and just, you know, let people. I mean, there's stuff all day long we could fight with people. Paul, you know, he wanted to go down. He wanted to, and, and they said, no, 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 no. Don't go down. Not safe, not good, not for you. Stay out of it. Not every fight is our fight. Paul listens. He doesn't go. He stays out. It's not his fight. Listen, when we get into fights that God's not telling us to get into, sometimes we're going to get beat. You might not like to hear that. But sometimes we get a beating. Why? Because we say things and do things that the Holy Spirit never told us to do. You say, well, well, that's not fair. I'm a Christian. I should be able to do everything I want, and, and God should protect me. No, we're protected when we stay under the covering. Is this on? <laughs> covering. When we stay under the covering. Children, stay under your parents' covering. Wives, stay under your husband's covering. Men, stay under the covering of the Holy Spirit. Stay connected to God. There's an order that God has. When we rebel against it and step out of it, we expose ourselves to the enemy, and sometimes we catch a beating. You can spiritualize it. You can legitimize it. You can blame it on everybody. You can say it's because the pastor don't preach good enough. But you're going to have to take it if you step out from under the covering. Paul stays under the covering. He allows the Holy Spirit to lead him, and that's a good thing for us to learn. Verse 32 is a perfect description of a mob. And we see the crowd here, and it's so wonderful the way the word describes the mob here. It says, so, so, it says, so then, some were shouting one thing, and some were shouting another, for the assembly was confused, and the majority did not know for what reason they had come together. If that's not the perfect cross-section of a mob, I don't know what is. I mean, the same, pro we see protests these days, too. People are out there protesting, and they're this, we're group, we're here protesting this, and you talk to somebody else, we're here protesting this, and they interview this person, I don't know why I'm here, I just want to break stuff and then light things on fire. <laughs> Am I telling the truth or what? Yes. Nothing has changed. We got these people in America riding in the streets, burning things, flipping cars over. What, what are you here for? Well, I don't know. What's your message? Crickets. That's the spirit of a mob. That's the spirit of the mob. It's the mob mentality. What's behind it? It's driven by demonic things. What was behind this mob? The demonic spirits behind the idols were angry, so they stirred up violence, and people are yelling one thing, and some people are yelling another thing, and most of the people don't even know what they're there for. Wow. You know, we're kind of insulated from some of this stuff on the West Coast where they have these Antifa riots and stuff. You... You know, you, you should see, if you don't know already, what violence there is in America. And these people that, you know, they want to get out in the streets and wear masks on their face and do all kinds of wickedness. I'm telling you, we are a patient country. God help these people if we, get, if we get enough of it and start to fight back. Because the righteous remnant in this nation is very reserved and we've held back our righteous might. But I think, you know what, there might, if God is not quick... I think some of this might get worse before it gets better. So understand the, 
you know, you and I don't belong in mobs shouting this and shouting that. We do our fighting on our knees. Someone say amen. amen. Verse 33 and 34, Alexander, who is thought to be at the center of the issue, is brought forward. Nobody will listen to him. Everybody's shouting. Everybody's screaming. The mob uh, is doing what mobs do. The second you know, mark of the mob here is they're chanting for two hours. They chant, great is Artemis of Ephesus. Great is Ar-. For two hours. Could you imagine that? I mean, it's not even a catchy little chant. For two hours. Great is Artemis of Ephesus. Great is, Ar-. I mean, for two hours. I don't know. I, I don't know what I would want to chant for two hours. Think about that for a second. So they're out there. They're in a frenzy. They're chanting for two hours straight. It's a big mess. Verse 35 through 41 as the chapter closes down. The town clerk, one of the officials of the town, he comes out and he finally, you know, has some insight to how to quell the mob here. They've chanted themselves into a frenzy. They've lathered themselves up with screaming and yelling. And, you know, uh, finally, after two hours, they've worn themselves out enough that they're willing to listen to some reason. The town official, the, the scripture calls him a clerk, makes some really great points. In 35 and 36, he says, everybody knows that the goddess of Artemis is the goddess of this region. He's like, everybody knows that. And they're like, oh, yeah. It's like they were out there yelling, you know, Boston, the Red Sox are the baseball team in Boston. They're yelling for two hours. Everybody knows that. It was the same kind of thing. It was a regional thing. Yeah, it was an idol, but they were all idolaters. So it's like everybody knows what you're chanting. It's an undisputed fact. Pretty much, what's your point? Verse 37, he said, these men haven't done anything. They haven't robbed our temples or blasphemed our idols. They've done nothing. In verse 38, he says, we have courts. We have pro-councils. That, that can deal with this. If the silversmith's union has a grievance, let them file it. Let them bring up some charges if they got a case. Verse 39 through 40, he says, we're in real danger of being held accountable here for our riotous behavior. Remember, they probably had to answer to their Roman overseers. And one thing the Romans didn't like was disorderly people because it was an aggravation to them. So the guy's saying, we're going to be held accountable for what, what happened here today, and we, we don't have a legitimate reason for what we just did. And all of a sudden, the people sober up. Everybody listens to reason. The latter-day Antifa mob goes home to their mother's basements. And they're all tuckered out from rioting, and the crowd is quelled. But I want you to see how these things that happen in Bible times still happen today. And that's why I'm, you know, I'm being humorous a little bit, but I'm trying to show you the similarities here because it's the same spiritual things behind these things that we see today. And the church needs to be above these things. We need to be about the business of bringing the gospel to the world. And we don't belong rioting and picking sides and stoking the fire. Amen. But we have a higher calling. We, our business is a lot more serious. And Paul stays out of this one, which is a reminder to all of us that some fights are not our fights. So only get involved in what the Lord leads you to get involved in. Amen. Uh, we'll do a lot better that way. So the chapter closes down. They have some success in the region. Paul makes a huge investment of time and energy there. 
there is there is definitely some success in the sense that everybody hears the gospel. Uh, churches are going to be planted all throughout the region. Uh, realize that region of Asia Minor there in Turkey is where all of the, the churches in the book of Revelation are, that when you hear about those churches, they're all in that region. So what Paul is sowing here is going to take root, and it's going to be a part of the church to the end of the age. Uh, it's not easy work, but it is productive because... When God tells us to do something and we bring the word of the Lord, it never returns void. Let's bow our heads tonight. Father, I just thank you, Lord, for this time together. I thank you for these people tonight. I pray that uh, you would have given each of us something here tonight for us to chew on and think about and apply to our lives. Lord, I just thank you for the book of Acts, a blueprint for our faith and for how we should live and how we should uh, consider ourselves disciples and evangelists and people who carry the light in the darkness. So remind us of all those things when we wake up tomorrow and let us be productive for the kingdom, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're going to take an offering tonight and uh, come and be cheerful givers. Yeah, you've been so close despite my distance